Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth, and this is a B-side episode. Before we get into that, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, the one you're listening to right now, wherever you're listening to it right now. Just get on there and hit subscribe and leave us a rating or review because that really helps us get this show in front of more people. We are, of course, on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. And we have merch available at poppantheonpod.com. My Queer Pop Party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, is having its next installment next Friday, July 14th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. So I'd love to see some of my West Coast niche legends at the party. The link to buy tickets will be in the show notes of this episode. And... I want to encourage everybody who likes the show to subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where we are providing at least three bonus episodes of the show per month at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by hitting the link in the show notes of the episode. All right. So tomorrow, July 7th, Taylor Swift, some of you might have heard of her. She is an aspiring pop star, is dropping the third in a series of re-recordings of her first seven albums. This is an incredibly ambitious project that she's been at for the last couple of years, where in order to regain control of the master recordings of her songs, she is re-recording all of the ones that were part of her first record deal with Big Machine Records that she signed in her teen years. And doing a note-for-note redo of every single album. On Friday, she will release the third of these, which is her third studio album, Speak Now. She has already released re-recordings of her second album, Fearless, and her fourth album, Red. And I thought this would be a good opportunity to gather an absolute murderer's row of smart Swifties to enter the chat and touch down on how this re-recording process is going, aesthetically, commercially, what it's all been received like, how it's affecting the broader state of Taylor Swift, Inc., et cetera, et cetera. So this is a broad-ranging conversation that is reflecting on how this re-recording process has unfolded over the last couple of years, what we're thinking about, about the future of it, and how basically it's all gone. So it was such a fun conversation with an incredible crew, Switched On Pop's Charlie Harding, Rolling Stone's Larisha Paul, and The Ringer's Every Single Album Podcast's Nora Princiati, all of whom have done wonderful coverage of Taylor in the past. Obviously, Switched On Pop has done a ton of great episodes about Taylor and did amazing coverage of Midnight's last year. Nora's podcast did an entire season covering Taylor's entire discography. So you should totally check that out. And Larisha has written incredible pieces about Taylor in Rolling Stone. So check out all their stuff also on Taylor. And I'm so happy that I had them all here today. Next week's Patreon episode will be a deep dive into Speak Now, both the original version and the re-recorded version with Nora. So if you want to hear our thoughts on that record, you can join our Patreon once again at patreon.com slash poppantheon. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Charlie, Larisha, and Nora. Okay, so I am here with music journalist and host of the podcast Switched on Pop, Charlie Harding. Hi, Charlie. Hello. Happy to be here. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm also here with staff writer at Rolling Stone, Larisha Paul. Larisha, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Big fan, big fan. And I'm also here with the host of The Ringers Every Single Album Podcast, Nora Princiati. Nora, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. So we're here with a big task. So Mm. in the coming weeks, Taylor Swift, some may know her, I'm not sure, (laughs) uh, up and coming star, will release... (laughs) the third 
in a series of re-records of her first seven albums. For anybody that hasn't followed this, I don't know where you've been for the last few years, but essentially the long and short of it is that Taylor first signed her record deal with Big Machine Records in 2005 when she was 15 years old. And in 2018, when she had ascended to the biggest pop star on the planet, her contract expired and she re-signed a new deal with Republic Records where I believe she owns her masters. She had been trying to purchase back her original masters from Big Machine, but was outbid by Justin Bieber's manager, Scooter Braun, and his company, Ithaca Holdings. And he now, or then I guess he doesn't own them at this point, owned her master recordings for her first seven albums, Taylor Swift, Fearless Speak Now, Red, 1989, and Reputation. And Taylor was less than pleased with this development. She, I think, didn't want anybody really to own her masters besides her, but also I think she felt specifically at odds with Scooter Braun because of, I don't know, does anybody know ex- remember exactly why she was upset with Scooter in particular being the one? Kim, Kanye, Bieber. Right. Things, the arc of Things history. of that nature. Things of that nature. It's an ever-evolving story, though, Louis. Like, still just yesterday, Music Business Worldwide reported updates to this story that actually maybe Scooter did try to sell the rights back to Taylor, but maybe not at terms that she was excited about. Mm. The narrative just keeps on expanding over the years. So exactly why? I think we're still waiting to find out. Right. Point being, she was particularly upset with Scooter being the one that had bought her masters. So in a move that only an artist as Machiavellian and I think otherworldly hardworking as Taylor Swift is, set out to note for note, re-record all of these albums and re-release them so that her fans would only stream and buy and that other people that wanted to license the songs would only be able to use the versions of the songs that she owned in their entirety. This is obviously an incredibly ambitious project. I'm assuming it's an incredibly expensive project that only an artist of Taylor Swift's financial means and power Mm. could execute on this level. So, so far, she has released two of these records. They are Fearless, her second album, which was kind of her breakthrough, I think, in many ways. She had had one previous album, self-titled, that had a couple big country hits and really established her, but Fearless was a massive success. It won Album of the Year at the Grammys, and I think many people's entry point to Taylor Swift was Fearless. And then, more recently, she released Red, her fourth album, which was, again, a really pivotal album for Taylor in which she began her move out of the country world into pop. This is the first record where Max Martin was present on the producer list. So these albums, I think, are widely considered by many of her fans to be two of the best or two of her most important. So those are the two we've gotten so far. And then on July 7th, she's going to release the third of this series of re-records, which is Speak Now, her third album, the one that comes after Fearless, but before Red. So I figured on this occasion, it would be good to gather a bunch of Swifty experts. I don't want to call you guys Swifties because I think maybe that term could have a bad add patina to it, but Taylor Swift fans and smart people who enjoy Taylor Swift's music to come on here and have a check-in about how this process of re-recording her albums is going for Taylor on numerous fronts. I want to talk about it aesthetically. I want to talk about it commercially. And I want to talk about it in terms of kind of like how this whole thing is affecting the broader world of Taylor Swift, both in terms of maybe how it's impacted her new music and also how it's affecting like her public 
narrative, which of course is one of Taylor Swift's preeminent occupations at all times. So my first question for you, I guess, is just what you feel like the commercial and aesthetic goals of this re-record process have been so we can lay that out for people. I did a little bit of it, but I'd like to get more into depth with that. So in terms of the commercial goals here, I think that's the easiest question to answer. What are the commercial goals of Taylor Swift doing this incredibly arduous process? Uh, maybe, Larissa, you can take that one. Yeah, I think when we think specifically about her trying to kind of regain this narrative control over the control of her music, right? And that she feels like these albums are capsules of different times in her lifetime. And so for them to be owned by anyone else was obviously very contentious for her in that sense. But I think when we're looking at it commercially, I think we also think about Taylor Swift as such a giant artist, right? Who somehow keeps getting bigger. She is currently at this very moment, post midnight's, you know, mid eras tour at the biggest point in her career. And this is like the seventh or eighth time that she's reached the biggest point in her career. And the fact that it keeps getting bigger and it keeps growing, is kind of just like, we're watching her literally world domination kind of get bigger and bigger year after year. And so I think with that comes like, obviously, like the massive capitalism conversation, you know, she is making a ridiculous amount of money off of merch, off of touring, off of the music, off of there being five, six, seven different versions of every album that she puts out, whether that be Midnight's, whether that be Folklore, Evermore, all of the re-recordings being packaged in a way with exclusive merch drops. And then if you buy that one, you get an album with it, and then there's gonna be another merch drop that's a little bit different. So you're gonna want that version too. And it just continues to build out her empire in a way that kind of makes her seem like deeply unstoppable. There's like, you know, record store day exclusives. There's Target exclusives. There's her website exclusives. There's just all of these different things. There's the long pond studio recordings, which are just like slightly acoustical versions of her already very acoustic <laughs> albums. And then there's versions of those songs that we're still waiting to hear and people are waiting to buy them, she's kind of waiting, people waiting hand and foot to give Taylor Swift their money, essentially. And especially, I think, the Scooter Braun of it all. This person wronged me in some way and made me feel a type of way. And this is my way of getting back at them. It gives everyone something to rally behind more than I just like this person's music. Now it becomes, it's not just that I listen to Taylor Swift and I like Taylor Swift, but I'm now in a very feminist way supporting Taylor Swift in this battle against this other man with a lot of money. I'm supporting this very rich white woman defeating this man who also is white and also very rich. And so I think when people who don't have anything to really meaningfully fight for, this gives them something to say, I'm rallying behind this person and I'm going to support this person because I, I, I stand behind the cause that it represents, essentially. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Anybody else want to add anything? Well, I, so I think fundamentally in the very beginning of the re-recording process and I guess through Red Taylor's version I think the goal was pretty straightforward which was just there is an asset right there are these existing master recordings and these existing versions on streaming services that are really valuable and that revenue stream is going to somebody else and this was happening and is still happening against a backdrop I think in the larger broader sort of business side of the music industry where music rights are increasingly viewed as really interesting and, and compelling assets, right? Like it is a potential passive stream of income 
income. And if a song is a big song, a song like Love Story, that people are going to play all the time. It's going to be playlisted all the time. People are going to, it was just in the bear season too. Like people want the rights. (laughs) They want it to be in movies. Like that stuff. We've seen catalogs get sold more and more frequently. And this be something that comes up, I think, more and more as sort of the thorny private equity world has gotten a sense of how streaming works and how to make money off of these things. So first and foremost, which and the commercial goals, I think, inform the aesthetic goals. I think she was trying to recreate something with a lot of fidelity to the originals so that that money, instead of going to those guys, Mm -hmm. it was going to her. And I think that that speaks to how this has all gotten tied up a little bit in how often she asks people to buy things and Mm. what the financial commitment of being a Taylor Swift fan is. I think that has gotten a little bit thornier in particular because of how expensive it's been to go to the Eras tour if you didn't make it through the queue. And even if you did, right? Because those tickets at face value, they're still not cheap. Now, obviously, they're a lot cheaper than they are in the secondary market. But originally, I think the aesthetic goal was primarily fidelity to the originals in 99. You know, we yassified girl at home. But other than that, I think she was trying to basically do one to ones in order to accomplish the commercial goal of the re-recordings, which was just we're recreating these but they're mine now. Mm -hmm. It's worth mentioning that she's one of a long list of artists who have re-recorded their music and have largely advocated for owning their master recordings. I think of so many artists, but like Prince comes to mind or even Mm -hmm. Gloria Gaynor re-recorded I Will Survive. There are so many re-recordings that have been done, but at this moment, it's important what she's doing because streaming has upended the economics of music and that in the streaming economy, 85% of royalties go to the owner of the master recording and only 15% go to the songwriter or the publisher. And so if she doesn't have any of that 85%, it makes sense that she wants to capture that asset. And it does, I think, on the positive side, serve as an example to up-and-coming songwriters to make sure that they Mm -hmm. can try to own the majority of their musical asset where they're going to be earning on streaming. It's so interesting because I think that this is something that, of course, as Charlie mentioned, has been attempted before or done in various ways before, but there's a level of scope and ambition to this project that feels <laughs> very Taylor specific to me. I mean, not just in the sense that she is attempting a note for note recording of seven albums, but also these are coming complete with immense amounts of bonus material, tracks that were supposedly written during the period that these albums were made that are fleshing out the worlds of these records. So not only is she note for note trying to recreate every single album that she had made under this previous deal, but she's also using this opportunity to like flood the market with new material that adds to the worlds of these records. So there's something obviously that feels like it's in a lineage of other big artists that have attempted versions of this before, but also something that feels very particularly Taylor in the sense that she's doing it sort of bigger and more complete in a way that like only someone I think with her prowess and wanting to control the narrative arc of her career in this way is novel. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I was going to put out there is, you know, Charlie, you mentioned Prince. I think something that maybe is worth repeating here is that most artists who do not become as successful as Taylor Swift or Prince don't really have the opportunity to even buy back their masters or ever have control of their master recordings. I mean, this is something that is really reserved even as a conversation for a group of artists that are 
incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful, incredibly successful. So the fact that Taylor was even in a position to attempt to purchase back her masters in the first place is a sign, I guess, of just how successful she's been and something that isn't quite accessible to most artists. And then I think, again, I don't know if we know the economics of what it's taking to pull this entire feat off, but I think the mere act of doing this must be something that is just so incredibly expensive to do. And obviously with Taylor Swift, it's worth it because she has the fan base and the devotees that will go out and buy this album again or listen to you know this record on streaming because they are so committed to the project of maintaining Taylor's version of her narrative, mm-hmm. no pun intended. <laughs> but I do think it's worth noting that this is something, and we can maybe get into this a little bit later, that feels very specific to a certain echelon of star whether that means the purchasing of the masters back or doing something like taylor's doing you brought up gloria Gaynor, charlie i mean she may have recorded her biggest hit but i think this is an entirely different thing where every single moment of the catalog getting recorded that's pretty ambitious and and in scope to me so Nora, you brought up that the aesthetic goal of this is to recreate this note by note. I want to have a discussion now about how successful you feel Fearless Taylor's version and Red Taylor's version have been at the aesthetic goal of recreating note for note these two albums. Charlie, perhaps you might want to jump in on that first. I think they're an overwhelming success. For me, when I listen to these albums, it's like going from the originals, which sound like FM radio, to Taylor's version which sound like an audiophile hi-fi system. The Mm. actual recordings sound richer. They have a bigger stereo field. There is bigger bass and higher highs. Her vocal is at its best. There are some arguments I think you could say that maybe for Fearless which has some more childish songs like Love Story, perhaps hearing the younger voice makes more sense given the lyrical material but her contemporary vocal performance is much stronger overall throughout. You can go song by song and you will hear just in the first five seconds of a track that the re-recordings sound bigger, fuller, richer. To extend the metaphor further, it's like going to the IMAX version of Taylor <laughs> Swift. <laughs> Aesthetically, most moments hit better, hit harder, and that she is doing an amazing job with these re-recordings. Maybe there's a few moments where I think the original is better, but overall, I think that these land very successfully. Yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable how close they come. And there are some things that I go through with a fine-tooth comb, which I think is another thing that a lot of fans have fun doing, right? Mm. But even down Mm. to something like the little giggle in Hey Steven was Mm. something where when I listened to Fearless Taylor's version for the first time, I was like, how is this gonna how is she gonna do that and it kind of works all those other girls well they're beautiful but would they write a song for you (laughs) all those other girls well they're beautiful but would they write a song for you (laughs) not every single thing is perfect i Mm -hmm. have a very strange bee in my bonnet about on the re-recorded red the wee 
and we are never ever getting back together. I call like Nathan, who's my co-host on every single album, and I call them the cocaine bears because it, it, you know in the music video there are those crazy guys in the bear suits jumping around. In the original version, the we sounds like a human is saying it. Like it's still a funny thing, but in Taylor's version, it's like one of the only things in the entire two re-recorded albums that actively bothers me. It sounds <laughs> so crazy. But, but I will say for as much as I lose from like, okay, I sorry, Taylor, I listen to Taylor's versions. Like I'm on board for the cause. When I playlist, we are never, ever getting back together. I do hand to heart playlist the original. That is not the case for basically every other song. And for as much as I lose in that, I probably get something out of being able to go, oh, the wheeze are a little bit different and like tell all my friends and be a crazy person. So you can tell, but largely they accomplish everything that the originals accomplish. Like I love Charlie's I'm Max Taylor's version. Like that is exactly what it sounds like. And even like Love Story and You Belong With Me, which remember, like this is mostly a project that has to do with how people stream these songs. Mm -hmm. And those are the songs that people stream the most. Yes, it matters when people hit play on the album and listen to it top to bottom. But the bulk of what matters here is if people choose the top, call it 10, 20 songs from the catalog and play Taylor's versions of those versus the originals. It really works. And they sounds so good and her voice is richer and stronger and it still manages to feel like you know the songs that I loved in high school so mm. with a few notes she's mostly <laughs> pulled it off all right Larissa what about you I feel like I agree definitely on the we're never ever getting back together point I remember a couple of weeks ago I was in the car and it came on the radio and it said you know on the radio thing we are never ever getting back together Taylor's version and I was like oh no and then it starts playing and I was like, this isn't Taylor's version. And so I thought it was so interesting that it was like, you know, the programming oh. was just like saying, yeah, you're listening to Taylor's version, the one you're supposed to listen to. You're not supposed to listen to the other one anymore. But it taboo. wasn't that. And I knew because of the wheeze, <laughs> I knew it wasn't right because the wheeze weren't right. And I think one of the things specifically about Red Taylor's version that I think plays the largest part in the fact that it doesn't necessarily sound the same is that there aren't the same producers on it. There's no mm -hmm. Max Martin on Taylor's version of Red. There's Jack Antonoff production on Taylor's version of Red that wasn't there on the original version because she hadn't started working with him yet. And so I think when we look at that element of it and the fact that she is undertaking this huge project of creating these songs again, she can't exactly capture the same people at the same moments to re create that sound in a way that has it replicate in the same way. But I think Fearless Taylor's version does that in a much better way where I don't notice the differences as easily. I listen to the Taylor's version of those songs. She loses to me on red. Kind of just like, I'm sorry, girl. I want to support you so bad, but they don't sound the same. And I think another part of it is that kind of going back to what Charlie mentioned about having her younger vocals on those original songs captured in the moment that she's recording them. I think there's also something to be said about the fact that she's recording these songs and she's not in those life situations anymore. She's not mm -hmm. in those eras of her life mm -hmm. anymore. She is a 30 something year old grown woman recording songs that she wrote when she was 17, 18, 19 years old. And you lose some of that angst when you become an adult with bills and a job and, you know, you can't really wallow in your feelings all day. And over the years, that anger really fades away. And what you might have felt very strongly in that moment might be really hard to channel 10 plus years later. Mm -hmm. You know, you might still carry those things with you. And she was at 
I forget what stop it was on Eversore the other day, she was talking about Speak Now coming out, Taylor's version coming out in the next couple of days. And she was basically asking everyone not to attack John Mayer, essentially, <laughs> or not wanting to relight that fire in any way. And she said, I'm 33 years old. I don't care about anything that I did or happened to me when I was 19 other than my music. I'm 33 years old. I don't care about anything that happened to me when I was 19 except the songs I wrote and the And I'm like, girl, I'm 25. I've never gotten over anything that happened to me at 19. Yeah, I'm still, <laughs> we got a ways to go. I never plan on doing that. 17 either. Like, I'm just, I'm holding on to all of this forever. But it's like one of those things where like, that's what's absent from it. It's that angst. It's what everyone, I would say, like loves about Olivia Rodrigo. It's like, they feel like she's still in that space. But if Olivia were to try to, you know, re-record Brutal in the next 10, 15 years for some reason, I don't think she would sound as angry. I don't think it would be calling people sociopaths and, and mm-hmm. all of these things. It wouldn't feel the same. But I think part of that is also, and I wrote a couple weeks ago about Better Than Revenge, which is going to be on Speak Now Taylor's version, which was Taylor's kind of slip into internalized misogyny a little bit. There's a line in there where she says, she's such an asterisk, she's better known for what she does on the mattress. She's not a saint, and she's not what you think. And that's not something that aligns with Taylor as we know her now. But when she was 19 and she was really angry about this breakup and this girl that she perceived as stealing her boyfriend when she still believed that boyfriends could be stolen, she was upset. Mm. And I was like, you know, we're going to hear this and she's either going to alter the lyric, which is not going to devalue the original as much as she intends for it to, or she's just going to re-record it as it is and we're going to hear her in this, you know, new realm of her life singing these words she wrote at 19 and there's I think a slight disconnect but also the fans don't want her to change them the whole point of this is that they want to be able to support her and so it it, it really relies on her maintaining the structure of the original mm. in order for it to have that devaluing occur it's so interesting Larissa because I'm so fascinated Charlie and Nora at how jazzed you are on these because mm. I agree with you that she has successfully in most instances recreated the records and I think I agree, obviously, with all of your comments about how the production sounds fuller and her voice obviously has improved greatly. I'm with Larisha in that Fearless works way better for me in the re-record than Red does. I have a number of bees in my bonnet about (laughs) Red's reproductions. I think the Max Martin songs sound incredibly different Mm -hmm. in the drum programming, and it bothers me to no end. I cannot listen to 22, I Knew You Were Trouble, and We Are Never Ever Ending. Up 22. 22, yeah. 22 also 22 took sounds a, took a ridiculously hit. different to me. <laughs> And then the other problem for me is that I'm not sure that I want 
fuller voiced, better production. I don't love the rewriting of history that these are doing. I don't need them to sound more perfect. I want them to be what they were in their original form. And to Larisha's point, of course, Taylor Swift is a consummate professional. She's going to be performing many of these songs for the rest of her life. She knows how to get up there and either reaccess those emotions or find new ways to access those same emotions so that she can deliver these songs over and over again to us. But there's something about the purity or the lightning in a bottle, je ne sais quoi, of the moment that these songs were created. And I was going to bring up what you just brought up, Larissa, which is that moment on tour where she said, hey, I don't care about what happened to me when I was 17 anymore. Whether you take that at face value or not, you know, the way that you express yourself is so different, even as those emotions inside of you calcify, change, become memories, become something that you're reflecting on as opposed to something you're living through. No matter what's going on there, there are ethereal differences in how you are going to be able to recreate this music. And again, it's not like if I listen to All Too Well, the new version, it doesn't still pack an insane emotional punch because obviously it does and it does when she sings it live and it's just, you know, obviously an incredible record that is one of her most amazing achievements ever. But... I find myself being a little bit like, I'm not choosing to go listen to the Taylor's versions. Do not come for me, Swifties. Like, I do, I feel... It's a safe space. I feel... Yeah, right. For me, no, for us. No, no <laughs> fandom is a safe space. Let's be real. Literally, and also, like, we're a safe space in the Zoom, but... The next stop of the Eras tour, she's going to get up and be like, don't at Louie. Like, everybody <laughs> calling you off. But... I actually do find that there's a certain, it's almost not even something I can name in particular as like, hey, this is where it's different. It's just a feeling like I like hearing 17 year old Taylor Swift sing those fearless songs. And those are the exact versions that are canonical to me. And of course, I went this weekend and I re-listened to the Taylor's versions and I had a wonderful time. I was in the car listening to Red in the car. I mean, one of the greatest all time human experiences, but like, I still find that I, on a personal level, besides once I get past the novelty of just like being like, oh, I want to hear how well she did this. I want to hear exactly what you were saying, Nora, about how it's just like, it's really fun to listen to like, how is she going to attempt the giggle? How is she going to attempt, you know, to deal with the better than revenge thing, which I'm so interested about, Larissa, on the new record. I find that if I had a choice and we're going to get to whether there's an obligation, that's another thing I want to discuss with you guys. I want to hear the original versions, even if they don't sound as full, rich, even if the voice is not as good. Like, there's a part of me that struggles with the sort of rewriting of history here. And it's like, yeah, a lot of singers improve in how they sing, and obviously studio technology evolves over time, but like, do we want artists, you know, just... It reminds me of um in Star Wars, when George Lucas went back and like redid the CGI in those like Star <laughs> Wars movies. And I was like, yeah, obviously CGI has come a long way in 30 years. But like, this is also rewriting history in a way that feels kind of strange to me. Charlie, I want you to have a chance to add what you wanted to say about an example of some of the dissonance, maybe, or some of the less accurate recreations that happen between the originals and the Taylor's versions. My favorite Taylor Swift moment of all time is coming into the down chorus of State of Grace about yes. three and a half minutes in. This beautiful thing happens where the whole track breaks down. And then when the bass comes in, it's coming in on a different note. It's not actually on the root note of the chord and it's really deep and low and the song just explodes out of there. It is my favorite Taylor Swift moment ever mm. and the re-record doesn't get the same power. It just doesn't mm. do it. Mm. This is the golden age. 
the bass doesn't hit as hard as I want it to. It doesn't give me chills like the original does every single time I listen to it. But mm. I will say, on the other side, I like listening to Taylor without the affected twang. I don't think mm. that Taylor was ever <laughs> a good country singer. And that when you listen to Fearless, you listen to Love Story or any, really any of the songs, there's this that she does that just she doesn't sell it that well and she doesn't try to redo the twang and so i actually think in some ways they're more honest to her actual vocal talked a bit about how successful some of the Max Martin productions can be. There is a challenge in re-recording anything that has a lot of electronics, things that are heavily synthesizer-based or yeah. sample-based, drum machine-based. Recreating those sounds precisely is very challenging. Even back on Fearless, like I had this realization that You Belong With Me was clearly a like reference copy of Since You've Been Gone. You Belong <laughs> With Me starts with a electronic drum machine. And then as the song peaks, turns into full acoustic drums. And in the bridge does this tom-tom fill thing that is exactly what Kelly Clarkson's Since You've Been Gone does, which was originally a reference of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. It's a <laughs> references all the way down. But when you listen to You Belong With Me off of Fearless, it also sounds weird in the same way that those Max Martin songs off of Red don't quite work. It makes me think of the re-recording of Coolio's Gangster's Paradise. If you listen to the original <laughs> and you listen to the re-recording, the re-recording doesn't work because the original is all about the strings and the production. And it puts you in a world and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm in a facsimile of the world when you listen to the re-recording. I think this is the biggest problem with the re-recordings and it's going to be your greatest challenge in her later albums is how to deal with contemporary production without it making it seem like it's a, a strange copy. There's a reason we don't have 1989 yet. Shake it off. It's going to be so bad. I'm, I'm, What about ready for it? Who's ready for ready for it? Taylor's version without Max Martin. I mean, that's going to sound insane. And I'm going to need her to show up to his home before she attempts to like, bring all the equipment to his door and hope he lets you in. Taylor, like, in Pacific Palisades, just banging on the door like, baby, I, yes. know, I, I know I didn't clear any of my songs for your musical, but I'm going to need you to hop on <laughs> Reputation, Taylor's version. Are you enjoying this episode? Because if you are, let me tell you, if you're only listening to the Pop Pantheon main feed, you're only getting half the story. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three, yes, three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're talking about all your favorite new albums like Jesse Ware's That Feels Good, digging into all the big singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope, Ariana Grande's Positions, Lady Gaga's Chromatica, and so much more with all of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All of this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So what are you doing? Go over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode to sign up at the icon tier today.
So my question now is about how we're listening to these. I mean, I guess I'm getting a sense from Charlie and Nora that given the opportunity on your free time, look, let's let's put aside, I want to come back to the political obligations that us and maybe the Swifties and maybe the casual fans, whoever, feel to support Taylor in this endeavor. But when you yourself, on your own, you're in your house, you're in the car, you're going for a run, whatever it is, are listening to Fearless and Red now, not when they dropped. Like now we're, you know, we're removed from the excitement around the Taylor's version drop. What are you listening to? Is it always one of the versions? Are there moments where you're choosing one or the other? Which do you prefer overall? And are is that is there not a universal answer? I mean, and any anything goes here. So I'll go back to front. On the political obligation thing, I don't think the most entrenched Swifty has a political obligation to listen to Taylor's versions. Now, in her heart of hearts, does she think this? I don't know. But the other person who has said exactly that is Taylor Swift. She says it during the Eras tour show all the time, which was that when she decided to do this, it was something that she felt she needed to do for herself. And it was really important to her and she decided to go for it. Now, I feel that I know enough about Taylor Swift to know that when she does something, she wants it to be very successful. Mm. So does she want you to listen to Taylor's versions? Yes, wow. absolutely. I love that you're saving this controversial take for this episode of Pop Pantheon. Thank you so Taylor much. Taylor Swift likes shiny achievements. Who knew? I think that that is at least enough license to take her word for it, right? And say, you know, you're not being a bad fan. You're not not supporting the little guy. There's no little guy in this fight. I do think that like in the grand history of Taylor Swift foils, I think she's chosen a pretty good one here and it's a compelling Mm -hmm. tete-a-tete to me. But I don't think that anyone should feel bad about listening to the old songs if that's what they want to hear. I listen to mostly Taylor's versions because I do think that she has made it worth my while to do so. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned Mm -hmm. We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. I think like 22, I'm partial to the original. Another one. So in Fearless, I'm not bothered that much by what you lose in, you know, young teenage Taylor singing the songs except in a couple of instances for the most part I love the improvements in the sound quality and the production and that more than enough makes up for what you lose forever and always Mm. is one of my favorite Taylor Swift songs and she Mm. just it's I I think for the most part she is able to recapture the angst and the emotion of the songs pretty well that's the one where for me I'm like you like Joe Jonas now and I can tell and (laughs) whatever we all love Sophie Turner but like not forever So I listened to the old one. I wonder if there's a way that we could be creating playlists like where we pick and choose our favorites from each version. Anyway, maybe that's a thought that we could all uh, we could be thinking about. Yeah. If I did that, if I did that, you would probably get I don't know 80, 85 percent Taylor's versions because I default to the Taylor's version unless I have a specific reason where I like something about the original. The other Mm. reason that happens is because of the vault tracks, Mm. which are not Mm -hmm. to me all slam dunk successes but there is enough on each one there are enough songs that I want to spend time with on both Fearless Taylor's version and Red Taylor's version that if I'm going to go to one album or another, if I go on Spotify and type in Fearless, I want to go to Taylor's version because I want to be able to listen to Mr. Perfectly Fine. Or if I do it with Red, Mm. depending Mm. on how I feel, I might want the all too all 10 minute version or I might just need to like I need to listen to Better Man once a day. 
So <laughs> otherwise I'll collapse. <laughs> so the fact that those are there, I think, you know, if you're talking about the value proposition to a fan, it makes you go to those albums. And once I'm already there, I want to listen to Phoebe's verse on nothing new. And then, oh, I'll listen to Holy Ground Taylor's version. I love that song. And then all of a sudden you're in there. So I, I think that's a big part of it too. I'm holding back my incredibly dangerous take that all too well five and a half minute version is the superior version, but that might be one of the most sacrilegious things I say on the podcast today. Anyway, Larissa, what about you? What are you, when you're going back to listen to these records, which ones are you choosing? Are you always choosing the same one? And in which circumstances might you choose one over the other? Yeah, I think it's interesting because as big of a pop fan as I am and as I've always been, my entry point to Taylor was Fearless, right? Mm-hmm. I was in a Coles and I heard You Belong With Me come <laughs> and I was like, oh, I like this. So you're calling Taylor mall you know? music. Oh, what well, a universal it was, it was 2008 experience. <laughs> it was great. And I was what, 11, 12 years old probably. And so that being my entry point, I, at that moment, knew Taylor as a pop star, as a radio artist. I knew the songs that came on the radio. I knew the songs that she performed on the award shows. I didn't know the deep cuts. I never went and bought Fearless. I never was big on buying records. I heard what I heard. And then once I could like illegally download my music as a young teenager with no money, I was downloading One Direction songs. It was a very different world that I was living in. And at that point, Taylor was dating Harry Styles. And so she was, you know, my pseudo enemy for that reason. (laughs) Um, And so when I heard Taylor's version of Fearless, that was my first time hearing hearing a lot of those songs in a long time. Like I hadn't listened to that album top to bottom Mm -hmm. in a very long time. And so I didn't have as much of an attachment to it as I did with Red, which I was like my bigger entry point because she was then working with Max Martin. And as a pop fan, you really cannot escape his grips Mm. in any type of way. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of just like pre-programmed to love anything that Max Martin touches. And so that was my entry point. That was the first album where when it came out, I was like, I have to listen to this album. It was the first album cycle of Taylor's that I participated in as a fan where I was looking forward to hearing the entire record top to bottom. And so when I listened to Fearless Taylor's version, it felt like me taking on those songs for the first time Mm. with not much to compare them to without Mm. an attachment Mm. already versus Mm. when I was going into Red Taylor's version, I was like, everything has changed better sound exactly the same or I'm coming to your house, I'm coming to Ed's (laughs) house, I'm coming to everyone's home. You know what I mean? And so it was one of those things where I was disappointed with Red because of those big Mm. pop moments not exactly sounding the same. And I think one of the things that is really interesting, especially when we think back to kind of the aesthetic goals of of these re-recordings, Fearless kind of came and went. Right. We kind of we it dropped. Everyone loved it. Loved the vault tracks. You know, Miss It Perfectly Fine. The fact that that wasn't on the original is insane. It's a perfect song. Mm. Love Joe Jonas. In the words of Sophie Turner on Instagram, not not a bop. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. She's she's on our side here. And then I think one of the interesting things was that as lax as that release was, there weren't as many versions. It was what it was. And then we get to Red and it is this grand month long. (laughs) event essentially (laughs) we have all too well 10 minute version we have all these vault tracks we have the short film we have taylor premiering the short film we have dylan o'brien in the mix and sadie sink in the mix when stranger (laughs) things is massive and it 
becomes this bigger thing. We have a 10 minute long song being regularly played on the radio. Which and is we're on Colbert and we're doing yeah. magazine interviews and we're doing Saturday Night Live and we're everywhere mm-hmm. and we're at the mm-hmm. Tribeca Film Festival. And yes, exactly that. And I feel like part of it is obviously everything that Taylor releases is attached to the narrative of some man, regardless of whether she wants it to be or not. And I think similarly, we don't hate Joe Donis. We like him. He's great. Jake Gyllenhaal? I think he, at that point in time, became public enemy number one (laughs) for everyone that's ever learned anything about Taylor Swift. And so the fact that that was the event that really boosted all of this in a way that now, pre-Speak Now, pre the third re-recording, Taylor's issuing a disclaimer not to attack her ex-boyfriend. I think these things are significant. I think these things are connected to one another. I think she is very in tune to what goes on with her fans in a way that she tries to pretend that she's not tries to kind of maintain a type of distance that she realistically does not have because she is always dropping little hints during the shows. She's like, I see what you guys are saying online. I know what you're calling me on TikTok. I know you guys think I hate Evermore and I don't. Featuring more Lana Del Rey. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) I appreciate the John Mayer disclaimer, to be honest, because every time I hear Dear John, I want to fight. Okay. And I think this is fair. And I think... Now that especially she's running out of songs to use for the surprise songs on Era Store, she is having to go into the depths that she did not want to go into. <laughs> Tim McGraw, um, come on. And, <laughs> the cavity. And part of that, part of that is having to, her having to, <laughs> to make these to make these disclaimers, especially when, you know, as much as, as it's her truth, she's revisiting these times in her life when she's pr- also providing more details about mm-hmm. the situation. And one thing about Taylor that really makes her music relatable and very universal is the fact that she uses so many specific details. It's mm-hmm. the color of the scarf. It's what the, the, the keychain says, which there was debate about whether there would even be a keychain that said, like, fuck the patriarchy at that point in time. Like, that wasn't really a thing that people said then. So how does that happen? But who knows? It becomes this thing where as she's expanding her catalog with these extra songs, she's also expanding the narrative and having people go back into the file and add more details, add more information, kind of read between the lines even more. And then also she has so many more fans than she did then. So now they're just now getting caught up on all of the things that happened. And it ends up being this whole kind of spirally kind of thing in a way that even like, Nora, I know you had started to mention earlier the 1989 re-recordings, which we already have two of. We have Wildest Dreams and we have This Love. And This Love is maybe like top three, my favorite Taylor song. She played it at my show in Philly and I collapsed to the ground and my throat hurt from how loud I screamed. (laughs) I got welcome to New York, so that's actually extra hurtful. (laughs) I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry for that happening. The fact Um, that she waited till Sunday with that one. People thought they got away with it. I got Welcome to New York at both the Eras Tour and the Reputation Tour. So everybody, please feel very, very sad for me. Horrible luck. Stop going to shows in the New York area. (laughs) Just like, at this point, you got to fly somewhere else. But even like that, I don't listen to the original version of This Love If I Can Help because the sound, and it goes back to what Charlie was saying earlier, it just has this different air around it that just sounds so ethereal and so dreamy. That's how 1989 feels to me. When we get past Welcome to New York, like, which I, you know, she could leave that <laughs> off the re-recording if she wants to, and I wouldn't care. 
when we get past that and we get into Out of the Woods, we get into Wildest Dreams, we get into Style, Blank Space, those are really mm-hmm. dreamy songs. Those are really dramatic, very Hollywood feeling songs. And I think This Love channels that in a way that I really appreciate. And she announced that with the trailer for an Amazon Prime show called The Summer I Turned Pretty, which is like an adaptation right. of a YA novel series. And I was like, this makes so much sense. And it's like every time, like that song is used to introduce the main boy that everyone's supposed to be so kicking their feet and giggling over. And then that's what that album sounds like to me. And so that works for me in a different way. And so when it attaches a memory to it, I think when there's a moment that I can call back to or that a song will draw me back to, when I listen to the re-recordings of Red, it doesn't mm. take me back to the same moments of, you know, listening to those original Red songs like while I was mm. waiting for the bus mm. to go to school or something. Like it doesn't bring me back to the same place. And now I have different memories of hearing these new recordings in different ways, but in my brain and the way that it functions in a very chaotic Virgo-y kind of way, it doesn't line up in the same place. And so they feel like separate songs. They feel like additional albums rather than them feeling like new versions of an old album. So the answer that is sense. that you, you're you going to go to Fearless Taylor's version, but Red Original for in most instances. Yes. All right, Charlie, mm-hmm. what about you? I'm very practical. If it's bad speakers, <laughs> bad headphones, it doesn't matter because you yeah. just can't hear the translation of the better recordings, yeah. which is to say like if I'm on my phone and I search Spotify and I'm just like, but, okay, random song. But if I'm on a better listening environment, I'll almost always go to Taylor's version because I think it sounds better. However, while I'm okay with the revisionist history of her vocal performance, I am actually not a lover of deluxe edition extra songs because Mm. for whatever reason, I like the hi-fi memory of my experience of these albums. And then once the bonus songs start coming out, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm no longer in 2010 or whatever. I'm like like Mm. in a different place. And so Mm -hmm. I prefer to experience those songs as singles in their own right, but I actually don't want them in the album. So I I generally skip them. The fuck the patriarchy of the whole thing, (laughs) one might say. you talked about the political obligations, right? And I think when we're talking about billionaire or near billionaire problems, we're not talking about political obligations as much as we're talking about capitalistic obligations. And I feel that Taylor was very slow to pick up on her own real political obligations as a star. And so I think that listeners can take their time as well deciding about how they would like to engage with this more capitalistic obligation of how to listen. That's so intriguing, too, because I think that there's something always a little bit disturbing to me about this sort of capitalistic Taylor Swift presence in the world, because I was thinking this at the Eras Tour, which I, of course, forked over an extraordinarily large amount of money to go to, which I will not reveal that figure here. (laughs) But... I do have this thing with her sometimes where I'm like, there is something dissonant and disturbing in some ways to me about watching this incredibly wealthy woman like wring every dollar she can out of these people that worship her. And I get that that's like what every pop star is doing on some level, but I feel like Taylor takes that to operatic heights. I mean, there is just nothing that the Swifties will not pay for over and over and over and over again. And in some ways, I think that does also kind of irritate me on some level about this entire project and is the reason that one of numerous reasons why I will always go back and listen to the OG versions. Maybe I'm just a spiteful bitch, but I literally (laughs) have this thing where I find it distasteful in some ways, even though, of course, there's a part of me that really supports this 
very famous woman taking control of her work and setting examples for other women in the space because obviously she is an incredibly influential member of the music community and a lot of artists look up to her. I understand, of course, the positive spin on the whole thing. And I do believe that that part of it is real too. But then there's this other part of me, and I think this will be a good jumping off point into sort of the next topic that I want to bring to the table, which is that there's an element of Taylor where it's like her love of making money and finding every single avenue to make as much money as she possibly can in some ways like rubs me the wrong way. And like, I do find it somewhat icky somehow sometimes. And I don't know if that's fair of me. Maybe that's my own biases. I don't know what it is, but there's something that these re-records represent and maybe a larger picture, which maybe is how I'll introduce this next topic, which is like Taylor right now, like Taylor 2023. And I think Nora, you were sort of starting to get at this is at really immense levels of saturation. She's been in this place before. It happened during the 1989 era where like the goodwill and excitement around Taylor Swift can like kind of tumble into a backlash against Taylor Swift. And I know there's been pieces written about this recently, but it kind of feels a little bit like we might be in another moment where she's in danger a little bit. I mean, we've had the Midnight's campaign. We've had all the re-releases. She's on this tour that is getting an inordinate amount of press attention and social media attention. She's got the next re-release coming out. She's releasing a music video for Cruel summer from lover just because she wants to i mean she's dating maddie healy that's getting lo- i mean she is definitely not anymore at, like, whatever <laughs> i meant she was dating <laughs> maddie our, our long national nightmare is over <laughs> <laughs> how has the reception been to taylor's re-recording process in general and i guess more broadly speaking do you agree with me that these could possibly be part of a moment where we somehow tip into too much taylor swiftness in our popular culture at the moment one really quick thing if i'm right with my numbers there's been a new taylor swift album every single year now yes. since 2019 and sometimes many in a year correct so she's been super, super, super saturated in a way that she'd at least taken a break from doing, right? Where mm-hmm. I think part of the difference between the rollout of Fearless Taylor's version, Red Taylor's version, came from the fact that, and for what I'm about to say, I'm taking from my co-host Nathan, who's talked about this with me on every single album a bunch, so I'm not going to have the exact figures that he does, and, and people can go seek that out, and Nathan's very smart and knows things, but his understanding, based on on streaming numbers and I think his own talking to people is that the reception to Fearless Taylor's version was sort of like a rising tide lifts all boats thing where Mm. the re-record did very well but it also just renewed a ton of interest in her catalog as a whole and it was also coming during this period where she'd dropped Folklore dropped Long Pond dropped Evermore and Evermore in particular got a little bit buried because it never really was seen as a distinct thing from Folklore and it was kind of like here's the b-side and didn't get all that much of a role and she was just doing so much stuff where then fearless comes out and my understanding is that they looked at the success of that and went okay this was good but the effect of this is that it's just made people more interested in taylor swift and that goes for the old stuff and that goes for the new stuff and that just sort of goes for everything with red i think it was a more direct success in what the actual intention of the project is which was when they gave it space to breathe and a traditional album rollout of doing media and all the shows and doing the video and 
and I think on the whole having stronger vault tracks to go along with it doing mm-hmm. the I bet you think about me music video as well as the all too well short film all of that stuff not only did that continue the trend of just like elevating interest in her catalog that really did cannibalize the old one which is which is interesting mm-hmm. because like I think probably among the assembled here I have relatively few issues with listening to the new versions over the old versions but I do on the whole think fearless is more one-to-one successful but red i think just because of the rollout it seemed as though the reception to that was that it accomplished sort of exactly what they wanted it to accomplish i guess i wonder and it is my assumption that part of why we haven't gotten another re-recording since is because she wanted to do midnights she has a new album and wanted to go on tour and had learned the lesson a little bit of the folklore evermore long pond fearless taylor's version that saturation that it was good to give some stuff a little bit of breathing room the thing is where she is right now the the response that she's getting from everything that she does midnight's is her biggest album ever the tour may go down as the biggest tour ever it's unbelievably expensive it's unbelievably high production value it's being consumed not only by the people who are watching it but like tons and tons and tons of people on social media every night like she can't retreat and then give you something Mm. else that's just that I don't think that's really possible in the moment that she's in so the oversaturation question which was a big part of the 1989 into reputation I'm gonna go into hiding because everybody hates me now it, it does carry with it a little bit of an unease among fans that that might be happening again. The thing that I think is interesting about it is that at least my sense is that to the extent that it feels like a backlash might be coming, it's a little bit of the inverse of what happened the first time where it really feels like it's coming from within the fan base, whereas outside of the fan base, when mm. where people are a little bit more casual about her, I think a lot of those people are more into Taylor Swift than they've ever been before in their lives. Mm. I mean, I made a joke about her being part of the bear season two, but like yeah. dudes love Taylor Swift now more than they have ever loved Taylor mm. Swift. There is a permission mm. structure around being a big Taylor Swift fan for like dads and bros <laughs> that I don't think has ever been in place. And I think those people are really psyched about her right now and are really on this thing of like, oh, she's a businesswoman and she <laughs> performs for three and a half hours a night. Springsteen doesn't even do that. Mm. This is crazy. She works so hard. Whereas the people whose you know Twitter handles are speak now 4263 diamond butterfly emoji and I say that with love because that is the energy that I bring to the table we are more likely I think right now to be the ones going look I love the music of the 1975 but must we be doing this right now and I will stand up on the table for thinking that Taylor deserves the benefit of the doubt with some of the commercial goals of the re-recording project like any day of the week because I do think that she does the work. Sure. I feel the same way about the Eras tour, which I will also be spending a fair bit of time financially recovering from. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. she does perform for three and a half hours. And mm-hmm. like the value proposition for me, for the most part, absolutely lines up. There are a few places and they seem relatively insignificant, but like... Girl, the merch is bad. The other day, (laughs) my evening chores were to delicately hand wash two items. One of them was my most prized cashmere sweater. And the other one was my friggin' Eras Tour t-shirt. Because if it went in the dryer or like touched the sunlight, it was going to fall apart at the seams. So there's stuff like that that if you're not 
really, really like in the weeds, you're kind of not affected by as much where, and I'm sorry, this is so long winded, but like the interesting thing about whether or not we're approaching a backlash right now is the call is coming from inside the building. I think Mm. it's not like the broader populace who's like Taylor Swift is too blonde. It's like, hey, I don't know if we should be publicly dating Maddie Healy, but then also making a bunch of statements about pride. That makes me feel weird. (laughs) And having Ice Spice on our song. (laughs) And having Ice Spice on our song. The operative question, just to put a bow on this, is like, how many of those people are ever, again, I say this is one of them, are ever actually going to turn on her? I will not. Of course, there's a line somewhere, but like things that I believe are within Taylor Swift who has made mistakes and and I think sometimes struggles to be outspoken in a way that comes across as authentic in the way that she wants to be. We've had her in our lives for a long time and I think we kind of know who she is. I don't think I am going to turn on that person. Like, I, I don't think that if the value prop continues to be what it is, I think she has me. I think she has a lot of the people who are raising concerns about things that she's done recently. So I actually, even though I feel the weird oversaturation storm clouds in the atmosphere, I don't really think it'll happen. I just wanted to jump in and say two things. One is that... I had a very grand plan at the Eras Tour to skip Evermore, my least favorite Taylor Swift album, and go buy merch. And all of that shit was gone, gone, gone. (laughs) There was not a t-shirt left in that stadium. So whether the merch is shitty or not, the girlies are out here buying that shitty ass merch. The other thing is... I was going to say is that I think there's this weird way that at least I can sort of bifurcate my Taylor Swift standom in that. And this has operated for me in many eras of her career, which is I love her as an artist and often find her as a public persona grading. And somehow those two things can like coexist for me in this weird way that actually also functions for her arch nemesis Kanye up into a certain point, similar kind of situation where like I can just engage with the art, go to the tour, listen to the records and be a Swifty. And then there'll be other parts of what she does that I find absolutely grating, irritating. And I just kind of shunt those two things off from each other. I do think she has become increasingly less grating as a public persona as time has gone on. Obviously, like this was peak annoying in her. I'm a feminist because I have model friends era. That was like a a definite moment where I was like, Taylor Swift, the person is not for me, even though like I listened to 1989 every single day. So I think there's a way in a sense, building off what you were saying, Nora, in which like the backlash, yes, could be like there's hypervigilance about it within the fan base, but like obviously they're not going to like jump ship on her. And I do think it's interesting that the fan base has expanded to such a point where maybe now just in thinking about these re-records, they serve a function of both sort of like allowing older fans to revisit them. And I think Larissa was getting at this earlier, are also kind of providing an entry point for those who got on board during 1989. I think a lot of people came on board during Folklore. I mean, there's so many people I talked to who are like, I didn't like Taylor Swift until I heard Folklore. So they are also providing a venue, I think, for people to go back and re-engage with those records. So maybe that isn't annoying to people. Maybe it doesn't feel like, over saturation to even her new fans or her casual fans. I want to ask this next question because I have two more things that I just want to cover before we get out of here. And I know we're going long here, but Speak Now is about to come out. We had a conversation about how some of this music is harder to re-record than others. Is Speak Now, in your estimation, on the better end of the success rate, I guess, of like what these attempted re-records are going to achieve? And then the second part of that question is, according to the rubric we've set forth about what makes some of these re-records 
backwards difficult. Which of the forthcoming ones do you feel have the biggest chance of success or are maybe that you're most excited to hear because they have the least big chance of success? Maybe, Charlie, you want to take that question? From a production point of view, Speak Now will fit right in between, literally, these two albums. It is more acoustically driven. It will be easier to, if not just reproduce, re-record with all kinds of sonic enhancements. I think we're going to enjoy it. I think it will probably depend heavily upon, like Fearless, like Red, some kind of larger meta-narratives about who was dating who, who still got a 10-year-old grudge that we can turn into another media campaign to, to be able to capture our attention in the same way. But I think this album will be very easy to slot into these re-recordings. Her debut as well, the songwriting isn't as strong, so it'll be interesting to see how that lands and what she can do with it. And then obviously 1989 and reputation are going to be just more challenging. I think she's going to have to find ways to almost reinterpret those songs because, again, when you're covering contemporary pop, it's so obviously a remix because contemporary pop depends so much on the timbre and the vibe of a song. The production is so important in contemporary pop music that I I, I think that she's going to have to take it into a different direction or it might struggle in sounding like a bad copy, but we'll we'll, we'll wait and see. I think Speak Now should be a relatively smooth one because it, it of all her albums it's yeah. really really hers right she wrote every song there's a reason that we have reassigned if this was a movie right to the fearless era as opposed to having it be part of speak now is because there's a co-writing credit nathan chapman i think is not really in the mix anymore who was part of a lot of the speak now songs i think he if i'm wrong about this i feel bad i think he, he like turned into a big trump guy and there's some weird stuff there so <laughs> he's like not in the mix anymore so I have a feeling because he he was not part of the fearless songs that he would have otherwise been involved in that there's going to be somebody else in that role. But again, it really is her album. The production is just not as significant to Charlie's point as I mean, 1989 will definitely be hard. And I think in particular important because she's got to get blank space right. Yeah. Like if if that's not a successful re-record the project takes a hit i think the project is pretty clearly succeeding and there are not that many things that could get in the way of that but something like that is a real real potential hiccup i st- reputation's gotta be the hardest what if she does the long pond version of both of them and just goes like straight <laughs> acoustic like throws i mean there's a, there's, there's a, totally a way in which she like might need to do something like that charlie because like I got to tell you, the one I'm most excited to hear is Reputation because I'm just genuinely like, how the fuck is she going to do this? Like, how is she going to do it? And that makes it more fun to me in some ways than like knowing that Speak Now is probably going to be a success. You know what I mean? I think also when I think about Reputation specifically, obviously it's like the last one that she's going to be recording. It's the most recent one, but it feels Mm. recent still. When I listen to it, those songs still don't sound Mm -hmm. as aged as when I Mm -hmm. listen to Mm -hmm. Fearless or Red. And so with the rate that she's releasing these re-recordings, three in three years, or she had two in 2021, right? Mm -hmm. And there wasn't one last year. And then we have the third one coming now. I feel like she really has to, I know she wants to get this done, but Mm. I think she has to slow down. She can't re-record reputation until a certain amount of time I believe that amount of time has passed okay the other thing thing. though is that we do we have there's pretty clear evidence that the 1989 songs have been recorded they are in the camp Mm. they just haven't come out yet yes she's released two of them already 
And so I'm assuming that's going to be the next one because I thought that 1989 was going to come before Speak Now because she had already released this Love Taylor's version. She released Wildest Dreams, Taylor's version. And so I assumed that that was going to be next. And then she bamboozled me and said, Speak Now. And I said, I don't want that, um, which is like, fine. I, I think she retracts it for you. I, I hear, I'm excited to hear Haunted with, you know, mm. all the strings and like the really big orchestral moment and kind of a, a higher sound quality, I think will be really great. But I think when we're looking at 1989 we're looking at reputation these these things where the sound is really important i think about getaway car mm-hmm. how are they going to do that twice kind of thing and she has jack antonoff in her basement so it's fine <laughs> but Chained to a wall. She'll at least be able, that's, that'll be that'll be the one good thing is that she will have her main producer with her when she goes back to 19 or when oh, you know when she releases 1989 right, right, and then right. reputation as well but I do think she needs to slow down and that ties into the the oversaturation conversation. And I think even like for me, like reputation was an era where I was just like, I don't want anything to do with this because of the conversation that was around it. And yeah. I did enjoy some of the songs, but it's like, you missed a tour when you're like, I don't want to give my money to someone who's involved in all of this stuff. When it starts getting into that point and then I kind of fell back into it with folklore because I was like, this is simple. This is great songwriting. This is great storytelling. I love this. There's no features from Future, which didn't make any sense. Why is Featuring Future, future wow. and you know? Ed Sheeran. When it was just kind of wow. all of the... I'm sorry. That song is good, but whatever. No, Endgame should have been it's... the endgame of pop music. You can't put I, those three people together. I will let y'all, ha- I will let y'all ah. have it, but I think specifically the conversation, the Kanye and Kim of it all around it, it was a choice in the same way that this Ice Spice collab post-dating Mally Healy is it, it was a choice and yeah. it became one of these times when it was the first time in a long time that I was reminded of what keeps me from being all in on Taylor. It was kind mm. of one of those things where it grabbed me by the collar and pulled me back out a little bit. Yeah. But again, I'm still going to sit here and listen to This Is Me Trying and cry my eyes out every Sunday <laughs> evening. It's like ritualistic, like I have to. But it's one of those things. And yeah, I think even that there's like some new version of August that was in the trailer for the semi term Pretty season two. And it's like, well, what is that? Where, oh, where is no. that coming from? No, Give no, me no, that. No, no. And it, again, it creates this mystery. It creates this allure. She, every mm-hmm. time she has teased one of these re-recordings, I think apart from Speak Now, because we haven't heard any of it yet, but when it was Fearless, they teased one of the audios. I want to say it was Love Story. Ryan Reynolds directed one of the ones that Ryan Reynolds directed. Yes. Yeah, I forget what it was for, but they used the new yes. version. And we heard a snippet of that. And then we hear a little bit of this love and this other TV show trailer. And we just kind of end up with all of these like bits and pieces that have people clamoring for, oh, this is going to be so good. I'm so excited for this. And then it comes out and everyone's like, here, take my money. But I definitely think as part of the oversaturation conversation, she does need to slow down a little bit. I think there's a lot going on. Some may say too much going on. And I think Mm. even... I wonder if they anticipated Midnight kind of playing out the way that it has, where I don't know if anyone listened to Midnight and thought this is going to be bigger than anything Taylor has ever done. I think Midnight is big as a function of Taylor being big, not as a function of the music being good, because I think that album is very bad uh, regressive mid yeah i don't like it i I think it's very regressive i think it calls back to too many recent moments in her career i think we're Mm -hmm. referencing out of the woods and we're referencing songs that are not even that old that are still really massive songs and i think her and jack antonoff need a break from each other and he needs to be able to go roam outside for a little bit before he comes back into her basement (laughs) this is my personal oversaturation (laughs) conversation is one jack it's yeah. Jack Antonoff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is this is a conversation I wanted to have, but I don't think we have time to really dive into it right now. Which is that, like, you know, I do think, and this is, I think, all 
that I can really say about it at the moment is that this project has been successful in Taylor Swift Inc., but I don't think has been successful for Taylor Swift artistically, in my opinion, as evidenced by Midnight's, I think this backwards looking obsession and the fact that we're still going to have to go through years and years of this has not led to evolutions in Taylor Swift's artistic impulses in the ways that I would hope and that seem to be the sort of narrative thrust of every Taylor Swift album through Evermore or through Folklore really which was that each album seemed to have a really specific purpose there was an advancement of the sound there was an advancement of the artistry there was a certain story that was unfurling over the course of the records that I believe starting with Evermore being a kind of carbon copy in many ways of Folklore and then Midnight's being backwards looking towards love or reputation in 1989 feel like perhaps subconsciously this project is having a negative impact on Taylor's artistic evolution which makes me hate it more and someone who already <laughs> is a little bit on the fence about this as an idea when midnights came out and i realized that my two least favorite taylor swift albums are the two most recent ones i started to get a little bit anxious about the impact that this is having on taylor's artistic prowess i want to go on record as loving midnights i like it too you can have that but i think going back to like charlie your point (laughs) earlier we got within the first what like day of midnights being out a handful of extra songs of bonus (laughs) material and then there was like the most recent like exclusive cd that was only available at Eristore and that had more songs on it meanwhile we have what is it midnight rain and karma and all of the single anti-hero like we have all of these big moments and i think it's really interesting to see karma and anti-hero be two of like the really big ones because those are very self-reflective very you know in the same vein as blank space where she's kind of taking these external perceptions and turning them inward and using them to her advantage you know to see taylor go through this phase of her career again where the tides are turning at a time when anti-hero is one of the biggest songs in the world it's just like all right girl like we i i don't know what else we're you know supposed to say or, or, or do about it but I think it's very interesting to watch because like you're saying, it's not adding anything to the creative conversation. I don't think there's a single song on Midnight that's going to shift anyone's like kind of top 50 ranking of their favorite Taylor songs. Like, I don't know if any of those kind of land in there. Mm, Antihero is is amazing. As someone who does not love Midnight. And it's also important, I think, as one of her most successful lead singles something that has been a tortured yes. history agree yes and when that was the thing because it did feel like this was and this is like a quick thing but like she had to do the errors tour and her most recent albums were acoustic and recorded mm. you know in the woods somewhere but she was <laughs> having a good time and relaxing and writing these really holistic songs but that were really that didn't have a lot going on with them and she couldn't take those on tour and just play those and then we go to 1989 and we go to red and we go to fearless we go to speak now she needed pop songs and that's why that whole last stretch of the eras tour show is just like hit after hit after hit after hit after hit from midnights and they're high energy but they don't feel the same as when she does cruel summer two hours earlier Mm. it has that disconnect to it she mm. needs to do something. I just, it, it, is it working is, is the question. I feel like you're trying to manufacture her decline. You're like, when is, <laughs> is oversaturation? These last two albums are no good. Clearly this is over. I, I think that a lot is working for her. I think that this new album is bringing in more young yeah. listeners than ever. Maybe yeah. it yes. feels regressive, but if anything, it's nostalgic for people who were 10 when she was already mid-career and are now super Swifties. I'm so surprised that she's accumulating new young fans. Right. When like her core fandom 
are now parents. You know, Nora, you, you said like, you know, there's now permission for dudes to like her music. I am a dude. I, I'm a dad. I try not to be a bro, but I've been trying <laughs> to be a part of making permission to enjoy Taylor Swift since at least Fearless in 2008 when I absolutely you, fell in love with the music. I, but I think we are all <laughs> the responsible. The one less bro, Charlie. We appreciate that effort. <laughs> I think we are all responsible for making this phenomenon. Oh, and for that, sure. You know, Taylor Swift, is she going anywhere? No, I think she's like climate change. There is nothing we can do. Like the seas are just rising. We have all made this wow. thing. We cannot <laughs> escape it. Whether you like it or not, she is here. And if you think there's going to be some kind of backlash which is going to take her down. I think the water is only going to rise further. And you can see it with these re-recordings. If you look at the data, her re-recordings are boosting the listens of her old recordings and her re-recordings are growing even faster than her old recordings. Like this thing is working for her and whether or not we might be aesthetically into some of her vibe and what she's doing right now, the seas are rising. Taylor Swift is continuing to rise. I want to be clear. I'm very clear this is working commercially for her. I'm just telling you yes. how I feel about it. I don't them want any personally. Swifties showing up at my home. I'm having a great time <laughs> if we remove certain front men of the 1975 from the mix, if we remove certain damage control aspects of the mix. I think it's fun. I think it's fun to watch. But I also think it is one of those things where she, like you're saying, she's not going anywhere. And I think part of the reason that people end up feeling so strongly about the choices that she does make, whether that be personally or artistically or whatever the case may be, and I'm thinking more specifically artistically, is because she has set the bar so high for herself. And so when you see that someone is that grand of a generational talent and that they can reach these heights, when you see them just kind of phoning it in in some ways, which is the Midnight's feels like very phoned into me, it's like, imagine what we could have had if she didn't do that. But I do mm. think we're like a handful of years from hearing what that could be. She obviously has no plans to stop making music at any point in time. We're, th- we're going to be having, you know, Taylor's going to end up with 50, 60 albums within the next <laughs> two, three decades, probably. <laughs> and so I think when we're thinking about it like that, <laughs> and I think when we when we get to like people who have like this many albums and we think about the great songwriters and, and people who have dozens of albums, there's always going to be a couple in there where you're like, that wasn't for me, but they're always going to pull you back in. And I think she's already at this still very early point in her career has already kind of reached that realm where we can say Midnight's was a miss for me, but somewhere within the next five, 10 albums, there's going to be a <laughs> lot of moments for me. Um, and wow. I think that's, I think that's where she is. It's stadiums for life. Agree. Agree. All right. That's a great, I think, point for us to to end this conversation. Can the four of us agree on which from the vault track from Fearless or Red is our favorite or the one that we should send the show out on. Which from the vault moment here is like the crown jewel and do and all too well 10 minute doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I think the obvious answer is Mr. Perfectly Fine. Mm-hmm. Personally. Yes. Shout out Joe Jonas. I was going to submit Better Man, but I would very happily mm-hmm. go out on Mr. Perfectly Fine. I love don't you? Because I think it is Jack Antonoff bringing the most Bruce Springsteen energy <laughs> to a Taylor Swift song mm. ever made, mm. and I am, I'm here for that. All right. Well, I was going to suggest nothing new, but uh, I think we've got two votes for Mr. Perfectly Fine, and so the panel has spoken. We're going to send the show out <laughs> on Mr. Perfectly Fine, parentheses Taylor's version, parentheses from the vault. I want to say thank you so much to Charlie Harding, Larissa Paul, Nora Princiati. Thank you you guys so much for being on the show absolutely thank you thank you it was fun chatting with you all this is yeah, a lot of fun yeah <laughs> we could have gone on couldn't we guys hours. <laughs> <laughs>